Hi, this is Edwin Crozier with the Franklin Church of Christ. Thank you for joining us as we open God's Word and study it and learn how to glorify and honor Him. If you've ever visited with us at the Franklin Church, you've probably wondered why we don't use instruments of music in our worship. I want to answer that question today and talk about instrumental worship. Where can we find it? So open up your Bibles with me and let's take a look about what God says regarding worship. A lot of times if people come in and visit with us for the very first time, there is an immediate question that comes to mind. In fact, if you're here as our guest today and it's the first time you've ever been our guest, you've probably already asked that question. And the question is, where's the piano? Where are the guitars? Where are the drums? It's become such an integral part of worship for so many people today that folks are amazed that there would be a church that wouldn't use mechanical instruments of music in worship, and even more amazing that there might be a church that would out there and say that it's wrong and sinful to worship God using mechanical instruments of worship. It's so amazing that even for Christians, sometimes we get to a point of asking, well, is there really anything wrong with it? We take a look around and we look at folks and see that so many people have found instrumental worship in a way that they believe they can bring it into their own. And sometimes we might begin to ask the question, can we find it? Is there really any problem with it? And so we're going to ask that question this morning. Instrumental worship. Where can we find it? Lots of people are finding it and bringing it into their worship today. Can we find it and use it in our worship as well? We're going to take a look at the places where people do find instruments of music today and also the places where they don't. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Gracious God in heaven, we come to you this morning so thankful that you've allowed us to gather here to worship you. We're amazed and and awed that you would allow us to sing your praises and to pray to you and to come into your presence. And we are so thankful for that mercy. Father, we pray that you be with us today, that our hearts will be enlightened by your word, that we'll not follow our own preconceived notions and ideas, but we'll simply follow the will that you have set forth and understand what you have said for us to do. Father, we praise your name and pray that you would help us to have the proper attitudes that we need to have in serving you and relating with one another, glorifying and honoring you. And Father, we're thankful for your word and pray that we can study and understand it so that we can know how to glorify you your way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You might be surprised to find out that we can actually find instrumental worship in a lot of places. And I just want to talk with you about some of those places where folks find it today and where we can find it. First place that folks often find instrumental worship is the Old Testament. There's no doubt that when we go to the Old Testament, we find that instruments of music were used to worship God. You can look at Psalm 150. Psalm 150 is just one example. And yet how clear it is. In Psalm 150, beginning at verse 3, Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with harp and lyre. Praise Him with timbrel and dancing. Praise Him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Some have suggested that when we look at these psalms and we see the instruments of music used there, that that was simply a concession under the old law that God had never really wanted it there, and yet He conceded and allowed that. But the problem is, we take a look at Second Chronicles chapter 29. 
In 2 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 25, a very interesting statement is found there. As Hezekiah is restoring the, is restoring the temple, in 2 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 25 it says, He then stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with harps, and with lyres, according to the command of David and of Gad the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet. For the command was from the Lord through his prophets. seems very apparent that under the old law, God commanded the use of instruments of music in worship to Him. And so we can certainly go to the Old Testament and we can find instrumental worship, but, but there's, I think, a reason we need to be cautious regarding that. Look in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 12. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 12, the Hebrew writer points out to us that when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there is a change of law also. When the priesthood changed from the Aaronic priesthood to the priesthood of Jesus Christ, the law which we were under changed. We're no longer under that law that was commanded in Second Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 25. We're no longer under that law that was being followed in Psalm 150. We're under a different law. And so the question is not, can we find instrumental music in this old law? The question is, can we find it in the law that we are under. And in fact, when we read the New Testament, we find that it's rather dangerous for us to go back to that old law to find authority for what we're going to do under Christ's new covenant. If you look in Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, Paul points out how dangerous it is for us to return to that old law as our authority for how we're supposed to worship God. No doubt there are all kinds of lessons there. Those things were written for our example. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes. But what we learn is it's not written there to tell us how we are to worship God under the new covenant. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, Paul wrote, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. That law was there as a tutor, a schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ. We said, now that faith has come in Christ, we're no longer under that schoolmaster. It's not our law. We go back to verse 10 of Galatians 3, and notice what Paul said. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith." Paul points out that if we want to go back to that old law, the law which is a curse, the law that Jesus died to deliver us from, if we want to go back to that law and use it as authority for what we're supposed to do, he says you've got to abide by every bit of it. And of course, that was the problem all the way along. No one could abide by every bit of it. The only one that ever did was Jesus, and that's why He died, to redeem us from that. So there's a curse if we want to go back to the old law to be our authority for what we're going to do. 
Also, Paul drives home one more point in Galatians chapter 5. He uses circumcision as the example because that was the problem they were having. Folks wanting to go back to the old law and saying that they were supposed to be circumcised. But Paul makes this point in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 2. He says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. See, it's that same principle that we just read in Galatians chapter 3. If you're going to go back to the law and try to pick and choose parts that you're supposed to follow, he says you're going to have to be under the whole thing. You don't get to pick and choose. If you're going to go back for one, you've got to take it all. Here he's talking about circumcision, but we could talk about any aspect of it. But then notice what happens if we go back to the law. Verse 4, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. It's a very dangerous thing. Certainly we can go to the Old Testament and we can find instrumental worship there, but if we're going to find it there and bring it into our worship and say that we can do it because it's under the old law, the Scripture points out some very dangerous consequences for us. Do we really want to take that path and go back under the law that Jesus died to free us from? I don't think that we do. There's another place that we can find instruments of music. Many folks find it in the symbolic pictures of heaven that we read about in the book of Revelation. We can go to Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8. In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We've got passages like Revelation chapter 14 and verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And then in chapter 15 and verse 2. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. And the argument basically goes something like this. Well, God allowed instrumental music of worship. In fact, commanded it under the old law. We look in Revelation, we see pictures of heaven, and it seems that we find instrumental worship there. What on earth would cause us to think that we can't do it now? And on the surface, I recognize that does seem like an interesting argument, an intriguing argument, one that we need to consider. But I think we need to be very careful. If we're going to go into these symbolic pictures of heaven and start finding authority for what we're going to be doing right now as we worship God. The very first thing that we need to consider is, are we really to take these symbolic pictures at face value as government for what we're supposed to be doing in our worship today? We go back to Revelation chapter 5. And in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8, those elders that had the golden harps and the golden bowls of incense, they're the same ones that we found in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 4. It says... Revelation 4, 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And then in verse 10 of chapter 4, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. Here we find these folks with the harps and the bowls. They're all so dressed in white. They're falling down before the throne. They've got crowns on their head and they're throwing them down. Are we to learn from that that as we come together to worship here, that we're supposed to dress in white, that we have to put crowns on our head that we're constantly throwing down to the floor? Of course not. We recognize that those are symbolic pictures. They're dressed in white. It demonstrates their purity. 
As we come to worship God, it's through forgiveness by the blood of Jesus Christ that purifies us, not because we're wearing white clothes. They cast the crown down before God. It's it's symbolic of their humility. As we come before God in worship, we are certainly supposed to be humble, but that doesn't mean we have to wear crowns that we throw down. And so as we look at these hearts, we're not necessarily seeing some type of physical physical representation of exactly what we're supposed to be doing here. Further, take a look at those golden bowls of incense. They didn't just have hearts, they had golden bowls of incense. Does that mean that as we gather for worship, we're supposed to burn incense? In this text, it actually tells us exactly what those bowls of incense were. They weren't to be taken at face value. They were symbolic of the prayers of the saints. And so as we look at these symbolic pictures, we're not finding exactly the physical representation of what we're supposed to be doing here as we worship God. But there's also another issue, a more fundamental issue that we need to understand as we take a look at the book of Revelation. I know a lot of folks have problems when we start talking about all the symbolism there, but one of the very interesting things we learn about the symbolism is that the symbolism of the book of Revelation is not New Testament symbolism. The symbolism of the book of Revelation is Old Testament symbolism. If you look again in Revelation chapter 15, and let's read more of that context there, in Revelation chapter 15 and verse 1, in Revelation chapter 15 and verse 1, John wrote, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, and seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast in his image, and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations, who will not... Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? For You alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before You. For Your righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was open. What is that temple of the tabernacle of testimony? That's what was in the Old Covenant. You see, these pictures of worship and these symbols that are used in the book of Revelation were not used because it's what the New Testament Christians were doing. They were used because they came from the Scriptures these New Testament Christians were familiar with, the Old Testament. And so as we take a look at these symbolic pictures of worship, we're not even looking at New Testament worship. We're back to looking at Old Testament worship that was used as these symbols in order to demonstrate that God was going to win. Because remember, that's the point behind Revelation. They go back to all these symbols and things that were happening under the Old Covenant to demonstrate that under the New Covenant, God is going to win. The reality is that if we're going to go to these symbolic pictures of heaven found in the book of Revelation to find out how we're supposed to worship God, we're doing the same thing we were doing just a minute ago. We're going back to the Old Testament to find out how to worship God because that's where these pictures come from. Not from what the New Testament Christians were doing, but from the Old Testament Scriptures that they were familiar with in order to teach the point. And we've already discussed the dangers of going back to the Old Testament for finding authority for what we do. Third place, New Testament silence. Basically, the thought goes like this. Where did God take instruments away? We can't find a passage in the New Testament where God said, you shall not use instruments of music. And so, since He never took them away, they must be allowed. Well, let me remind you what we just learned a few moments ago from Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 12. Do you remember what was written there? 
Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 12, when, there is a, when the priesthood is changed of necessity, takes place a change of law also. The law was changed. We're under a different law. The question is not, under this new law, did God ever say, we're not doing that, we're not doing that, we're not doing that from the old law. The question is, under this new law, what has He said we're supposed to be doing? The question is not, when did He ever take them away? The question is, when did He ever bring them in? We're, we're not under that law system anymore. And we're not waiting for God to say, under this new law, it's different from that old law. It's just different, because it's a new law. And so our question is, now that we're under this new law, where does He say... They were supposed to do it. Does the fact that there is silence about condemnation mean that there is permission? Certainly not. Certainly not. We've got to be looking for authorization. Second Timothy chapter three, verses sixteen and seventeen. Second Timothy chapter three, verses sixteen and seventeen says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Paul points out that God has given us the Scripture to equip us for every good work or to authorize every good work. He doesn't say God gave us the Scripture to condemn every bad work. And so what we are forced to conclude, if we can't go into the law that we are under and find equipping for an action, it is not a good work. I just want you to think for just a moment, an illustration that somebody once, I once heard from someone else, and I think it really drives home the point and just demonstrates this is really just common sense. We're not just making this up. Just think about this. If you went into somebody's house and you walked into one room and that room was just absolutely filled with instruments of music. I mean, they had pianos, they had drums, they had guitars, saxophone, flutes, uh, harps, all kinds of things. You'd recognize that that was a music room, wouldn't you? And if you saw all those instruments there, would you think that that was done on accident? Just accidentally all these instruments ended up in this room. No, of course not. you think that was done on purpose. But then you walk into the next room, and you're just as amazed as you were by all the instruments in the first room. You walk into the next room, and you find that there are absolutely none. Not even a harmonica sitting anywhere. Right. Would you think that that was done on accident? Would you think that that person really wanted you to go back into the other room and grab a few of them and bring them in there to decorate? I think we'd recognize, no, the person obviously did this on purpose. They've got one room for music and this one is not. And, and we'd leave it that way. We wouldn't mess with it. And I think what we find is, when you take a look at the Old Testament, I mean, from front to back, it's all over the place. We find instruments of music there. But you go into the New Testament and you don't find any. And I just have to think that, you know, God didn't do that on accident. God, God must have done that on purpose. And there's a lesson that we're supposed to learn there. We can't go to silence because one of the things we have to realize, if we're going to go to silence and bring something in, we have to realize who's bringing it in. Not God. Us. If we're going to go to where He didn't say anything about it and start bringing it in, that's us saying we're going to do it. That's not God saying we ought to do it. And I think we can all recognize the dangers of adding in that way. Then there are folks that find instruments of music in post-biblical Christianity. We take a look at some of those ancient Christians. And, and really, you just on the surface, we think about it, boy, it just makes a whole lot of sense. You take a look at somebody who lived in the second century, whose, whose uh, teacher had been a disciple of the apostles, and I think we might all say, you know, that guy probably knows what the apostles taught. And if he says it's all right, he probably knows. Even if we can't find it in the New Testament, why, the apostles must have done it because he knew the apostles. 
And so they'll find quotes like this one. This is from Clement of Alexandria. Clement of Alexandria lived in the 2nd century, lived from 153 to 217 A.D. Clement of Alexandria wrote, For the apostle adds again, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace into your hearts, with grace in your heart to God. And even if you wish to sing and play to the harp or lyre, there is no blame. Thou shalt imitate the righteous Hebrew king in his thanksgiving to God. Rejoice in the Lord, ye righteous. Praise is comely to the upright, says the prophecy. Confess to the Lord on the harp. Play to him on the psaltery of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. And does not the ten string psaltery indicate the word Jesus who is manifested by the element of the decad? You see, there he says, well, you know, there's no blame if you want to play on the harp and the lyre. There's Clement, 153 A.D. I mean, that's just a hundred years after Jesus. John the Apostle didn't die until almost a hundred A.D. And so you've got, here's a guy that probably knew people that knew John. And so surely, we can take a look at their practice. And even if we can't find it in the New Testament, we can find from them what must have been going on. Because surely, it wouldn't have changed so quickly. And interestingly, I recognize that on the surface, that comment does sound like Clement was using instruments of music in worship. And we're not going to spend all day going and looking at all the quotes. The reality is Clement did not use them. And we have to take this quote we just read and combine it with uh, another quote from the same author. He said, And he who is of David and yet before him, the Word of God. Okay, did you catch that? He who is of David and yet before him. That's Jesus, the Son of David, the Son of God despising the lyre and harp, which are but lifeless instruments, and having tuned by the Holy Spirit the universe, and especially man, who composed of body and soul is a universe in miniature, makes melody to God on this instrument of many tones, and to this instrument, I mean man, he sings accordingly. Clement actually points out in some other passages that when he looks at the Psalms and sees those instruments of music, he believes that the psalmist is actually symbolically referring to man. You even notice when he talked about in that first quote, the ten strings psalter, he said, doesn't that refer to Jesus who is revealed to us through the decad, the ten laws? Uh, so what we find out is that Clement actually didn't use instruments of music in worship. In fact, he was very much opposed to it, and we could add quote on top of quote, but the, the fact is, we could argue back and forth about what Clement did or what Clement didn't do, and what, what those Christians did. We really wouldn't be any closer to knowing whether we can use instruments of music in our worship. Because remember what 2 Timothy 3.16 said? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says, God has given us Scripture so that we can be equipped for every good work. He did not give us Scripture as well as post-biblical Christian examples to know what we should do. And that's one of the big mistakes that's, that's made often today is we assume because these people were so close to the apostles that if they did something that we can't find in here, we must be allowed to do it as well. And their actions are just as authoritative as Scripture. But what Paul said was, the Scripture has been given to authorize and that's it. We don't get to say, well, I know it's not in the Scripture, but these guys after the Bible did it, and they were pretty close. It's the Scripture is what equips us, and nothing else. And just think about this as a way of practical example. We can go into 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 17. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 17, Paul said, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. 
For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat or drink, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this I will not praise you. And we continue to read on. We can read the rest of the chapter and see that even while the apostles lived in the worship of the Christians, sometimes they went astray and the apostles had to call them back. How much more once the apostles are dead, the churches might go astray and the apostles aren't there to correct them anymore. They've got to just go back to the Word and decide. We can't look at examples of Christians as authoritative unless the Scripture demonstrates that those examples are approved. And so we can find possibly instrumental worship in post-biblical Christians. But that's still not what God said is the place where we should find it. Finally, there are some folks that that just go ahead and steer clear of of trying to find a, a place specifically stated in Scripture, they just go to personal logic. And they just point out that, look, what could really be wrong with it? You know, I just can't see any harm in it, some will say. Or some will say, I just think God wants us all to be able to use our talents to worship and praise Him. There are numerous ways that people have just gone into their own logic and determined that it must be okay for us to use instrumental worship. I have to tell you, if we were going to do my druthers, if we were going to do what I liked, we'd have them. I mean, I love instruments. I love instrumental music. I love to sing along with it. I mean, that's just, you know, it's a, you ask Marita when we're driving in the car. She's always having to tell me to be quiet because I sing too loud with all that stuff on the radio. Uh, you know, the, I, I took piano lessons as a kid. I'm not any good at it anymore. Uh, I was in junior high and high school band. I still like to play the guitar and the drums, and I would love to worship God in a jam session with all of you. I mean, just be great to me. But I've read enough in Scripture that caused me to realize that my personal likes and dislikes are not what God judges things by. And just because I can say in my mind that I see it as being good or I don't see any harm in it, doesn't provide scriptural authority. Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 23. In Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 23, the prophet of God said, I know, O Lord that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. It's not in me to direct my steps. I've got to go to God's Word to direct my steps. Then, of course, there's Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12. It's a very frightening passage if I'm going to base how I worship God on what I think. Proverbs 14.12 and Proverbs 16.25 both say the same thing. They both say, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. The only place that I can go and find authority for what I'm doing is I just think that it's okay or I just can't imagine that God would really have a problem with that. If that's the only thing I can say in defense of what I'm doing, Proverbs 14.12 says that's pretty dangerous because uh, there's a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in death. So it's very interesting. We can go all over the place. We can find all kinds of places where instrumental worship can be brought in. And I really appreciate all the work that people have done trying to bring instruments of worship in to our worship because it brings in stark relief the one place that we can't find instruments of music in worship. And that's 
in the New Testament teaching or example. We can find it in the Old Testament. We can find it in symbolic pictures of heaven. We can find it uh, possibly in New Testament silence. We can find it possibly from post-apostolic Christians. We can find it in our personal logic. We can find it in all of those places. But in all the debates that I've ever heard, in all the times I've ever heard anybody talking, as they, as they bring up all these places where we can find it, it's just amazing. The one place where we need to find it is the one place where we can't find it. And that, to me is very telling and very important about what we're supposed to do. Because as we look through the New Testament, as we look through the teaching about worship, and there's so much teaching about worship in the New Testament, as we look at the examples of worship in the New Testament, not one single time do we ever find instruments of music used. Let's consider some passages. Acts chapter 16 and verse 25. In Acts chapter 16... And verse 25, the Scripture there says, But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. We can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 13. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse, excuse me, verse 15, what is the outcome then? I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the mind also. Ephesians chapter 5, And verse 19, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19 says, Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 says, Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. James chapter 4 and verse 13. In James chapter 4, and verse 13, James said, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. As we take a look at the worship that is taught and the worship that is exemplified in Scripture, in New Testament, we find singing. We don't find playing. We find singing. And remember what we said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 that we've got to be looking for equipping. Remember, we're under a different law. We're not under that old law. We're under a new law. And so now under our new law, we've got to start finding the equipping for what we do in worship. And when we go to the new law, we find equipping to sing. And in one of those passages, it even told us what instrument we're to make the melody on. Did you catch that? In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts. To the Lord. This is the instrument that God has given us to make melody, our heart, in order to sing and to praise God. And so as we go back to the New Testament, the one place where we need to find instrumental worship, if we're going to worship God in that way, we can find it in all kinds of places, but the one place we need to find it is the one place we can't find it. While we recognize, as we've already pointed out, that we look at the Old Testament, that it's not our authority, those lessons that were there were given as our examples. Romans 15 and verse 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, those things were written as our examples. So we look at Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. And Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1 through 3 is not written to tell us how to worship God, but it is an example for how God deals with His covenant people when they disregard His law. 
In Leviticus chapter 10, beginning at verse 1, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them. Notice, the issue is not that they offered fire He had commanded them not to do. They offered fire which He had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. These two young men had done something God had not commanded them. And they were wiped out for it. And we don't want to be guilty of doing that same thing. We can look in the New Testament and see what God has commanded us under this law, and that is saying that He hasn't commanded or authorized in any way the use of instrumental worship, of instruments of music and worship, either by statement, by example, or by necessary implication. It just hasn't been done. And we will be guilty of the same sin of Nadab and Abihu, offering worship that God has not commanded. If we bring from one of those other sources instruments of music into our worship, we need to do what God has commanded and authorized. And that's it. Nothing else. I'm certain that I haven't answered every question that people might have about instruments of music, but I think you, you can see the point. If you're our guest here and you've often wondered, why don't they do that? I, I imagine you thought we're just absolutely insane because it's just a, a natural part of everybody else's worship, it seems. But see, one of the amazing things is we can find it in a lot of places, but we can't find it in the New Testament. And because we can't, we want to worship the way they did and do things the way they did so that we can be what they were. Nothing else. Just those New Testament Christians glorifying and honoring God His way. Because only when we glorify and honor Him His way are we really glorifying and honoring Him. I pray that everything we ever do glorifies and honors God. Amen? I hope this lesson helped answer any questions that you might have regarding why we at the Franklin Church of Christ don't use instruments of music to worship God. Let's remember what we learned here today. We've learned the places where we can find instruments of music to worship God. The Old Testament, possibly symbolic pictures of worship in heaven, New Testament silence, post-biblical ancient Christians, and personal logic. But the reason we don't use instruments of music is because despite the fact that we can find it in all those places, the one place where we need to be able to find it is the one place we can't find it. We cannot find instrumental worship in the teaching and example of New Testament Christians and churches. If you have any other questions about how we worship God, about the way God says we ought to worship Him, perhaps you think we've missed the boat on this issue, please give us a call at 615-794-2359 or you can contact us through our website at franklinchurchofchrist.com. Perhaps somebody gave you this lesson. If so, I invite you to come to that website. Again, it's franklinchurchofchrist.com. We've got numerous lessons on a variety of topics that you're free to download and listen to in audio format or study in the outline format share it with your friends and family, or simply study it yourself. Whatever you believe will help glorify God. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. But more importantly, may you richly bless God.